Welcome to Commons Groundswell, a podcast that examines human relationship with land through conversations with inspiring leaders, changemakers, and agrarian trust collaborators. Welcome to Commons Groundswell. I'm your host, Natalie Ashker Sievers. In this episode, I speak with Luis Marcos and Leah Vinton of Comunidad Maya Pishan Ishim, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering the Mayan community in Nebraska. Luis talks about his experience as a member of the displaced Conjobal Maya people and his relationship with his ancestral homeland. Leah and Luis discuss the importance of building relationships with existing native groups in Nebraska and their plans for an agricultural program. So thank you guys so much for joining me, Leah and Luis. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So I thought that first it would be great just to talk a little bit about your organization. And I'd love to just, you know, learn what you guys are doing and learn about how you're fulfilling a need in your community. Yes. So do you want to go, Leah, and then me, or <laughs> who who wants to? <laughs> she always does that to me. Uh, you know, thank you uh, for inviting me. My name is Luis Marcos, and I'm co-executive director of Comunidad Maya Pishan Ishim, uh, a, uh, a 501c3 organization of the Maya community here in uh, on the land of the Omaha Nation, uh, known today as uh, Nebraska. Comunidad Maya Pishan Ishim. Um, Pishan means the spirit or the essence of. Um, Ishim is corn. So Pishan Ishim uh, is the spirit of corn. And corn is a sacred element in Maya worldview and spirituality. It's part of our story of creation. Uh, and so this is, uh, the, that's why the name of the organization. We started in 2007. Uh, you know, we are now on the traditional homeland of the Omaha nation known today as um, the city of Omaha in the state of Nebraska. This is where our uh, organization is based. Um, we have uh a health, uh, you know, my health initiative. We do have an education uh, initiative, uh, a human rights uh, initiative, and now we're getting into uh, regenerative agriculture. I feel like I'm uh, forgetting a program, arts and culture initiative. And so all of these are programs that we run, very powerful programs that we run at grassroots uh, level, but now we are gradually elevating these programs to be evidence-based, uh, you know, programs as we grow as an institution. Do you want to add anything to that, Leah? Um, I'll just say Leah Vinton. <laughs> Hello. Thanks for having us. Um, I am the director of strategic partnerships and I'm honored to work with Luis, um, as a non Conhobal Maya, um, community member, but an ally here in Omaha um, for the community. And I would just add that we also have, Luis mentioned human rights program, but we have a team in Omaha and then we also have a remote team um, who actually works throughout the Southwest um, and the West and is focused on family reunification. Um, So we are a part of the Family Reunification Task Force. A lot of folks who came to the um, border, the southern border, a few years ago when there was a lot of um, parents and, and children separated were Maya, and there was a serious deficit of understanding um, of the needs of that community. And so there was wasn't adequate translation support. Um, there just also isn't a really great understanding of the indigenous communities in Central America. So um, it's been really powerful for the organization to be kind of front front and center on advocating for 
you know, their own community members and other, other Maya indigenous groups that, um, you know, their families were separated. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was pretty shocked to learn that there are, or I don't know if this number is still accurate, but I read that there were 10,000 Maya people in Nebraska and 2000 in Omaha. Is that number still? Yeah, those are very conservative numbers. It's really important. So yes, in terms of numbers, we we estimate, uh, you know, considering Maya territory, right? Um, you know, that extends from the southern parts of Mexico, the entire state of Guatemala and Belize, and northwestern portions of El Salvador and Honduras. Those are all contemporary states on Maya territory. So when you think of that number and you look at census data, we're guesstimating that there is, you know, conservatively uh, a million people of Maya origin in the United States, about 10,000 in Nebraska, we think, and about, you know, two to 3,000 in the city of, of Omaha alone, which makes us the largest uh, displaced indigenous, uh, you know, group here. Uh, so... Would you mind sharing a little bit about your ancestral homeland and where you come from and, you know, a, li- a little bit about your backstory? I, I do belong to the Franjoval Maya nation. And, you know, as indigenous peoples, uh, since the so-called uh, discovery of our continent uh, here, there has been cycles of violence committed, uh, you know, against all indigenous peoples uh, in the Maya included. Uh, but one cycle that reached the attention of the international community took place between 1960 and 1996 is when on paper they did sign peace accords. Um, so, it really did reach uh, genocidal levels during uh, during the early 1980s. Um, so when I was 17, I was 17 at, in 1989 at the age of 17, um, the military, uh, Guatemala military was forcefully recruiting, uh, you know, teenagers like myself at the time to go in and be trained and then in order to commit those uh, acts of genocide against our own people. And this is how I left and uh, lived in Los Angeles, California for about 10 years uh, in California. I also lived in South San Francisco uh, and then moved uh, to uh, Midwest, to the Midwest region in 1999. So we have been here for about, you know, do the math. <laughs> twenty years, more than twenty years already. So, uh, yeah, we're not here to do math. <laughs> yeah, we're not here to do math. I can't think right now. So, this is how I, I ended up here. But yeah, did your did your family whole family come, or were you by yourself? At the time, I um, I did travel with an, an, with another brother. So I had before because you know when it started in 1983 you know a lot of people were fleeing so two of my brothers uh, were already here in the United States when I came in 1989 with Maya my other brother but I lost uh, two of them to alcohol and uh, my other brother just decided to go back and he has his family and small business in Maya territory right now Guatemala so our our the Canjobal Maya territory is divided by the borders of Mexico and and Guatemala itself. itself. So we have uh, relatives uh, of Anjobal Maya in, in Mexico and also in Guatemala. So that's it. What kind of relationship do you have now with your homeland? I mean, how frequently do you go back? And I'm just kind of wondering what that relationship looks like. Since we came, since I came here to, to the United States, I, you know, become part of, uh, you know, uh, different community organizations in Los Angeles, uh, in San Francisco. uh, And we've been organizing ourselves and things that, and we have been asking ourselves the question of how do we 
uh, want to articulate our presence here in the United States. For example, you know, we were displaced, the, the policy of the state of Guatemala, and this is true with any colonial state, including Canada, the United States, Mexico, all of these states on uh, indigenous people's land, they have, you know, the policy of extermination, exclusion, or forced assimilation. Uh, you know, those are pretty much the, uh, the, the, the policies towards indigenous peoples. And so when we came here, we asked ourselves the question of, you know, how do we want to articulate our presence? Do we just assimilate and say we're part of the Latino or Hispanic uh, community or how do we want to do that? And so we, that's about a 30 year, uh, you know, conversation that we had, like organizing many different conferences. The conclusion uh, that we came to is to just say that we are a displaced indigenous group, indigenous nation. And in international law, when you, you know, a people or a nation uh, has the right to self-determination and self-government. And so in that sense, my relationship to, uh, to my traditional homeland right now involves, uh, you know, reporting back to my elders, uh, to the spiritual and political authorities of the Fanjobal Maya government, I, among other ha hats that I wear, and uh, I, is, I am the I am a spiritual and political authority within the Kahwal Maya Nation, uh, appointed ambassador uh, to the Omaha Nation, uh, where we have a diplomatic relationship. Uh, it's inherent in and alienable, but it's also supported by Article Thirty Six of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and so that is my relationship to 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 our traditional homeland. Uh, my both of my parents passed, and I still have siblings there that I uh, go and see. But mainly, when I go, I go to just to, to to because I'm called to go to uh, continue, uh, you know, witnessing all of these other, uh, you know, human rights violations that continue to happen because the war didn't end in 1996 when the, when they signed that peace accord. It continues. Uh, you know, some international jurists refer to what's happening right now to um, uh, low-intensity uh, genocide uh, is what continues to happen, uh, you know, right now. In Omaha, and I know that you have, like you mentioned, you've built trust and some relationship with some of the, you know, the Omaha Nation and and maybe other Native tribes that you know are native to the Nebraska and surrounding areas. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how is a displaced Indigenous group? You know, I'm sure that you're more sensitive to what that means to come into another native groups, you know, come onto that land, um, more sensitive to it than anybody else could possibly be. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so I, I would like to go back a little bit, if it's okay, uh, just to provide uh, more, because I, I, when, I, when I share these stories, I share it from, from my heart. Um, and with a lot of love and care for our common humanity. Uh, I don't speak from uh, anger, or, uh, but I speak from a lot of love for our common humanity. So when I, 
I would like to ask the audience or, or, or someone that will be watching this to look up uh, the, the preliminary study of the, uh, uh, of the impact uh, of the doctrine of discovery uh, on indigenous peoples. So they will see exactly what I am saying. So this, this idea that, you know, this, this series of papal bulls that came from the Catholic Church uh, during the uh, 1500s, uh, you know, was codified into law in the United States in a case called uh, Johnson v. McIntosh. Uh, and so now it's part of what we call the, the body of, uh, you know, international law. And this is why indigenous peoples really uh, don't even, <laughs> it's, we're not even there. Like, like we, we don't have a voice. We don't have, a, you know, presence. We don't have... Um, so, and in that sense, so because I want to give, you know, I want, I want to say that what I'm saying is, 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 there's a lot of scholars, uh, scholarly written materials out there that we can research uh, and do. But in terms of coming here to Omaha, the first thing that we said is, you know, uh, knowing our history. Uh, you know, the first thing that we do when we get to a, uh, you know, a place is who lived there before, and how do we honor. You know that, and this is why it took us about, uh, you know, ten years to develop this relationship with the Omaha Nation. And so, what they have told us is, I'm honored to work with. Uh, what they have told us is this: uh, that, you know, we welcomed, you know, the first immigrants here, uh, you know, two, three hundred years ago. Uh, we welcomed the first immigrants here, and now you are an indigenous group. Uh, we 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 have been, we have always been, you know, in, in contact with one another. Actually, uh, during COVID, when you know COVID hit us, um, you know, a member of the Omaha and Cherokee Nation uh, gave us our sacred seeds. He said, "We." We want to give you back these seeds because we know that it was the Maya who first uh, cultivated corn uh, and gave us to us, gave it to us when we needed. Now that you are among us, take your sacred seeds, you know, again. And and so this is why how we started to plant our sacred seeds here in in the city of Omaha and hoping to. Uh, expand and practice, you know, uh, agriculture in a way that uh, is regenerative, uh, in a way that, in the same way that our ancestors practiced, you know, agriculture. And so we've been welcomed. The Omaha Nation has a, their, part of their philosophical understanding is when somebody comes to us, you bring us blessings. Um, and so this is what they have, this is how they have welcomed us. And thank you for, you know, you're on our land. And uh, and so we ask them for, for their blessings and we always thank them for allowing us to flourish on, on their land. As we, uh, you know, elevate these uh, also conversations at state level, we, you know, have, we invite, you know, elected officials and to have these conversations with them and introduce ourselves with hopes that, you know, we can, one day um, really make and implement, uh, you know, in collaborative efforts with the state, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for reminding us that there is a lot of scholarship and there's plenty for people to read in terms of, you know, understanding, uh, like you said, the repercussions of the um, doctrine of discovery. Um, yeah. Leah, I want to kind of turn to you and give Luis a break. <laughs> um, he Leah, needs a break. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you so much. And I so appreciate, and I can hear that you speak from the heart, Luis, and um, so appreciate you being, you know, honest and um, sharing your story. So Leah, how did you come to this work? And um, give us a little bit of background and context for, um, for where you come from. Yeah, thank you. And I think um, I might make a bridge by saying that I think that that's one thing that's really powerful about the Conhoba Maya community in Nebraska. They really serve as a connector um, and I they really serve as an advocate for 
other indigenous communities here. And I think, you know, sort of in their role as like outsiders or, or new um, arrivals to the state, um, they've kind of been able to maybe look at things from a different perspective. And I think they've brought together a lot of um, groups that just wouldn't have been a, a natural or maybe an obvious alliance. So um, I think that's, a, you know, like something we can all learn from um, and have really like approached their work in a, a very um, respectful way. Um, Luis and the community often talk about sacred reciprocity. I know that's not a value that's, you know, inherent only to the Maya, but it's an indigenous um, concept and value. And I think that the Kanhobal Maya and Comunidad Maya Pishani Shim really practice that sacred reciprocity. So um, in doing so, they've built really strong, really meaningful, you know, relationships with like everyone from like the University of Nebraska <laughs> to, um, you know, the Winnebago and, um, yeah, just a, a, a wide variety of people. So mm -hmm. I guess including myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did, how did you get involved in doing this work? Well, um, I, I was just reflecting on this earlier, but I feel like I was very lucky. I had some very um, insightful, very forward-thinking teachers, actually, when I was younger. Um, so maybe surprisingly, I, I learned a lot about Central America and um, sort of some of the political and social um, challenges from my Spanish high school Spanish teacher. So I, I studied Spanish um, all throughout school. And yeah, I think, I mean, she was looking back, she was very progressive because <laughs> we, we learned a lot that I, I, I'm pretty sure was due to her vision and, and, you know, what she wanted us to understand about um, our, our near neighbors to the South. So um, I guess another link is my, my youngest brother is adopted from Honduras. So from a very young age, I went to Honduras and um, so just kind of had that, I guess, awareness that maybe most Americans don't have of Central America and that, you know, there it even exists and kind of understand some of the history. So, um, yeah, from I guess from a, or maybe an early age, I had some understanding of what had happened in, in Guatemala and did study Spanish and political science in undergrad. I also took some class, had some classwork um, at the University of Utah. Actually, specifically, we had a class about indigenous peoples and culture, um, which was a little bit more like historically focused. But, um, you know, there was that, those kind of scholarship opportunities available. And most recently, I did work after graduate school in Guatemala with an organization that connects indigenous artisans in Guatemala to international retailers as a form of earning income. Um, I love the organization. I think that one thing that really drew me to Pishani Shim, though, was that it's, you know, for Kanho Balmaya ba by Kanho Balmaya you know, like a FUBU model, forest bias. So that is extremely unique, I think, in these spaces. Um, you know, people, uh, I think it's just a very special model. Um, and I think it really speaks to the power, power of the community here that, you know, they took it upon themselves to create a space and a community to advocate for themselves, which is exactly what they've, what they've done. So in that regard, when I met Luis through um, a, a mutual friend, I was really struck by some of the, you know, really big picture and ambitious projects that they're looking at, not only for themselves, but for the state of Nebraska, especially when we're talking about regenerative agriculture. So I think it's um, a great, like a great example if, if people are given, you know, the space and, um, 
like the legal structures, I guess, to, to build something for their own community, it can be really powerful. And I think, um, yeah, it's, it's something we all can learn from. Absolutely. I've learned a lot already and just learning, you know, reading about your organization. Um, so, you know, talking about agriculture, can, can you all share a little bit about the regeneration program and kind of your, your dreams and hopes for what you can do through this agriculture program? Yeah, uh, we can share this question, uh, yeah, because you, uh, so for us, if you, um, you know, really, if you just look at kind of like the history of the Maya civilization, very highly, highly sophisticated civilization, especially during, you know, our classic, uh, you know, period, um, and the reason that we reached that level of sophistication in in mathematics, in medicine, in architecture, astronomy, is because we have that sacred relationship with Mother Earth, right? We see Earth is not um, to us. Earth is our is our mother, uh, and when we are displaced from from our from this from our mother from these places that are sacred to us, and we come here end up working in meatpacking plants or even or construction work or restaurants and things like that. We're really disconnected from, from Mother Earth. And I think one thing that COVID uh, taught, taught us is that, you know, the disruption also in food, you know, and how it's delivered and all of these things. And so we really, the, the Maya Regeneration Project is a, uh, an attempt for the Anjobal Maya to go back to our, that spiritual relationship with, with Mother Earth, right? To heal the water, uh, to heal the soil, and to heal human, human health. Uh, because it, 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 it's, uh, you know, yeah, it's that. <laughs> Not, yeah, and we're attempting to secure access to, to land is what we would like to see right now is, you know, we have our Gardens of Hope over here in at this community center. We also participate in different community gardens uh, just so that we are, you know, gradually going back and then hopefully scale it, uh, you know, do regenerative agriculture at scale. Leah, you probably have more to add as well. <laughs> yeah, I think that, um, you know, in addition to the spiritual and cultural um, and mental health reasons that the community would like to practice agriculture and have access to land, Nebraska is also a very unique state. It's the state with the third highest um, level of production for agriculture. Obviously it's a leading, you know, it's a leading industry here in the state. I think I read recently like 95% of the land in Nebraska is used for agri agribusiness purposes. Wow. So it's a state that's very, very oriented around agriculture, but it's, you know, mostly in the form of cash crops, very heavily monocropped. And so you know, a lot of scientists are sounding the alarm that we are reaching a, a state um, of, you know, of um, of alarm at, at the topsoil that we're losing. Um, you know, we're losing billions of of tons of of topsoil, and um, I read recently also that thirty five percent of the topsoil in the Midwest um, is is gone. So, you know, this is critical to our survival as humans and to our ab ability to access healthy food. And um, in addition to, you know, looking to the future of what it would look like to grow food without having healthy soil, even the food that we're eating now, given um, the practices that conventional farmers are using, the food that we're eating now isn't as nutritious, nutritious as it should be because the soil isn't able to retain and capture, you know, those vital nutrients. So 
um, it's like a very spiritual uh, approach and, and desire of the Kanhawal Maya community, but it's also, I think in a lot of ways, very practical and it's a very necessary endeavor that the, the state of Nebraska um, and, you know, the U.S. really needs to to get serious about because we're reaching kind of a critical point in being able to grow food for ourselves. You know, how would this agricultural endeavor support food sovereignty for your own community? Is that part of the goal as well? Like more, is it about healing Mother Earth and? And water, soil, Mother Earth, and humans, right? And humanity. For us, the Maya people is uh, the centerpiece of our worldview and spirituality is that we're here to live in harmony. Uh, we're here to live in harmony and equilibrium with humanity, with this understanding that we're diverse, you know, very diverse political systems, very diverse cultures, languages, uh, you know, um, skin colors, and, and yet, uh, we are all related, right? Uh, so we're here to live in harmony, not only with humanity, but with Mother Earth, with everything, like, you know, the trees, we talk about the rights of nature, uh, the, the rivers have the rights, the, the trees have rights, the animals. So our life is not superior or inferior to any, uh, any, any, any life, but we are just an element of this, you know, entirety we called we call life um so yes it is to benefit the 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 we're building an ecosystem uh so we would like to have access to some land we're looking at uh, 310 acres we would love to purchase uh, but we're not focused on that farm only what we really want to do is for us to accomplish that that for us to as a, as a human family to, to really think about a seventh generation, right? The generations to come. Uh, and, you know, we won't be able to do much on 310. So what we're doing is building the ecosystem where we just finished with the, with the summit, uh, Indigenous Peoples Summit, where we brought, we, uh, you know, Indigenous peoples gathered and, and, and talked about precisely these topics that we're talking about. And so, um, it's an attempt to go back to our spiritual relationship with Mother Earth. It's an attempt to contribute to the global problem, local global problem that we have of climate change. And it's 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 not an isolated project. It's we're building, you know, relationships, establishing, you know, respectful uh, relationships with with you know, the academic institutions with philanthropy, with the state, indigenous peoples, governments, like everybody, we need to come together. Uh, and uh, I don't like to say save Mother Earth because I think Mother Earth would be okay without us. Probably better, yeah. <laughs> Probably better. <laughs> yeah, but, she's going to outlive us for sure. <laughs> but really to help the seventh generation, what's what will be left uh, you know, when we're gone, how do we, how, how, how can we be good ancestors uh, as our friends from the seventh generation uh, fund for indigenous peoples would say is how do we, how can we be good ancestors? That's a great question. Would you be willing, Luis, to share a little, like, you know, there's clearly so much that we have to learn from indigenous agricultural practices. I'm like the one that immediately comes to mind is just like biodiversity in the Milpa gardens and things like that. You know, would you be willing to share a little bit about any Mayan practice, you know, agriculture practices or, you know, anything that you see as kind of like a beacon of hope in this time of what feels like dark, you know, industrial agriculture <laughs> everywhere. Mm -hmm. 
as I go to many, uh, you know, conferences and, and, and things, uh, I hear a, a lot about the, the Milpa system or the Three Sisters system. Um, I mean, going back to a little bit, I mean, this is uh, for us indigenous nations uh, before the borders of contemporary states, we were exchanging, you know, cultures, exchanging um you know, trading and uh, influencing each other's worldview and spirituality. And so if you really look at indigenous people's worldview is pretty much earth-based. And that is because uh, of those levels of, you know, trading that happened, you know. And so the Three Sisters, you know, system, you know, where corn, you know, grows and we put beans in there and then um and then this the 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 corn provides support to the bean and the bean provides nutrients that the the corn itself needs and then we put squash and squash also provides you know shade and and so there is like each one of these plants have uh you know uh, a role to play and this is where what Leah talked about earlier sacred reciprocity where you know they come together and they protect each other and they grow together uh, and and flourish together and this is is the lesson that we as human family can draw from and and learn from and and live in that way uh, our ancestors were very good in, in like the agroforestry systems, like, you know, food can come from the forests. You don't have to clean, you know, you don't have to like kill every single tree to, to plant food. You can actually get food, you know, from forests. And we have our partners, uh, you know, in, in Maya territory, Belize, you know, uh, Dr. Narciso Torres will be honored at the University of California, Santa Barbara, for his knowledge, you know, in agroforestry systems. But, you know, it's it's hope. It gives us hope. And yet very few of these people know exactly what to do. And so uh, we really need to get to the elders, uh, you know, get their knowledge and their wisdom and, and, and how and encourage, you know, the young people to go back uh, to that relationship with Mother Earth. Um, alternate, uh, you know, without that, yeah. <laughs> Do you see a lot of interest um, from the young people in your community who are interested in agriculture? Leah, can you wanna, do you want to share a little bit? <laughs> I will, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so the, the community was really busy this summer, as Luis mentioned, there was three, um, sites that folks were growing food on. Um, and one of those was at the, um, farm of our close friend and, and partner, Graham Christensen and his family farm, um, in Lyons, Nebraska and or near Lyons. And he generously gave us part of an acre to do some fun experimentation with some cover crop and growing some milpa um, among other veggies. And the young people were very involved in taking care of that piece of land. Uh, we also were excited to work with the Latino Center of the Midlands who has been a really good partner to us. And, you know, even though they're really focused on the Latino community, they've been super supportive and receptive to Comunidad Maya Pishani Shim's message of, uh, you know, indigenous communities within, within the Latin American communities um, here in Nebraska. So it was a tremendous experience for them. And they also were able to incorporate, we have a, a media program, um, which, was used during COVID to help spread uh, messaging and, and knowledge about coronavirus in Conho Ball. Um, the students have made other videos around like Maya um, culture and Cosmovision, but they even did some videos about, about the acreage that we were working on. And I know Luis has told me that there's even some, you know, young people 
that have realized that like it could be a career option and they've asked like, is this something I can study? Like, could I go to university for this? And obviously that's amazing, amazing for us to hear because um, they most certainly can (laughs) and they're in the right state to do that. And we need them. Mm-hmm. desperately. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember what the the average age of the farmer is in, in the United States, but definitely like in the late fifties or early sixties. So. Right. Well, and I think that's also one thing, and it was also a young, uh, an adolescent girl. So that's even, you know, even more exciting, but that's one thing about this model that, um, Luis and, you know, it's a whole network of folks that we're working with, but, and also the hosts of the podcast, <laughs> you know, the agrarian trust, we're really excited about setting up the um, Maya commons model so that, you know, we can hopefully obtain this 310 acres that we've been dreaming about, but, you know, with, with hopes that in the future we're also gifted or can acquire other pieces of land that, you know, could be used for people who can't get access to land. It's extremely expensive in Nebraska right now. Um, we were just on another call speaking with some colleagues and, you know, across the U S it's 98% of land is held by, um, nine non BIPOC farmers. And in Nebraska, it's like 0.01%. So there's not a tremendous amount of diversity, you know, in the, who we see as farmers here. So I think that's something that we, would love to see in the future, you know, land that we, that the community um, holds that could be shared with other people that would like to farm. So, and, um, and I also, Leah, it's probably good to just briefly mention this evidence-based process of Native Nations uh, rebuilding. Like for the last 30 years, we have been articulating our presence as Indigenous nation here, but during summer we came across uh, a, an evidence-based process of building, rebuilding, you know, the Indigenous peoples rebuilding. Uh, and we're working on that. We're working with, uh, we have, we're fortunate to have, uh, you know, Professor um, Stephen Cornell as an advisory board to our Economic Development Corporation uh, here. And so, you know, we want to make sure we want to create the environment where, uh, you know, these programs can can last and can can really have impact and change beyond, you know, uh, a leader. Uh, you know, it's not about one person. It's about the entire, you know, system. It's about the entire community, uh, you know, organizing. So we're working on that. Uh, so... Um, so we're just so grateful to have partners like yourself, you know, giving us this platform, uh, you know, partners like, uh, you know, the Agrarian Land Trust, uh, you know, the Nature Conservancy is working closely with us and, you know, leaders like Leah, who, uh, you know, really is out there and, you know, just uh, working, uh, you know, uh, for these principles, uh, you know, guiding principles of sovereignty, indigenous people's sovereignty, you know, making sure that the decisions that we make are strategic, uh, you know, not reactive to crises or opportunities, you know, making sure that, you know, the, the institutions uh, that that we lead, including Pishani Shim, the Maya Economic Development Corporation, the Maya Agrarian Land Trust, uh, is serving the community itself. Since you mentioned the Agrarian Trust, what was appealing about the commons model and how the commons model aligns with your like community values? You know, we talk about land ownership here uh, as, as a legal term, but uh, in indigenous worldview and spirituality, and it should be really understood across the board. You don't own, <laughs> you don't own your mother. You know, you, you belong to your mother. You have a, uh, you know, a respectful relationship with your mother. You, you, uh, you honor. Uh, and so uh, I think this model allows us to really 
you know, allow some uh, indigenous, you know, peoples to, to, you know, the, uh, the opportunity to just provide stewardship, you know, uh, you know, to land and, and take care of land and take care of everyone. <laughs> I hope that helps. But yeah, the, the model, you know, it's just a community-based collective. I think too, it's one thing that Luis talks about a lot is like being a good neighbor. And, you know, there's so many like land ownership, like you mentioned, it's, it's like so fraught with so many layers and um, like historical and familial. And um, so I think one thing also that is cool about the model is that, like, you know, it's, it will be governed by a group of people. It's not, you know, it's not just going to be one person making decisions about how it's administered or who has access. So I think that's something else that's really in, in line with, you know, the Conhoval Maya community's values and, you know, we've started building relationships with folks around pieces of land that we hope to have access to. Um, and I think that that could present some really great ways for the neighbor, you know, our neighbors to be involved um, in, in this project with us because it will have to be governed by, you know, by like a board. So. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's so exciting that it will remain in agricultural you know, it will remain agricultural land. <clears throat> and so that's like, you know, like you mentioned earlier, for the benefit of the community and Mother Earth, both, you know, healing for all, really. Okay. So before I ask my last question, is there anything that I didn't ask you that is related to, you know, your personal relationship to land or as an organization relationship to land or anything that you want to share that I didn't ask you about? Oh, I think I I would just um, add the, the the benefit to the community. We really we can, we we can have a spiritual relationship with Mother Earth, uh, and at the same time, uh, be you know make a living, like you know bring people out of out of poverty and and and. And all, so there, there would be some uh, economic development that also will emerge, uh, you know, from from access that will benefit the community. So we're setting up different businesses, uh, you know, so that so that the community can can also benefit from benefit from from what you can, you know, practicing the way we're gonna be practicing. We will get, you know, maybe twenty, thirty different products from one acre of land compared to one. Uh, you know, in 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 mono in monoculture practices, and so that will be an opportunity for my community members to do a lot, a lot more. You know, and and, and have a lot of economic activity from 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 there. Just like everyone else, you know, the the community members have aspirations, and some of the work, you know, working at a meatpacking factory. Um, or another, you know, industrial factory type setting. I mean, that's really hard work. And I, I know a lot of community members are excited at the opportunity to, you know, work outside, work in a different environment, um, build something alongside their community members and learn something new. I mean, we all want to learn new skills and, you know, building off of those traditional indigenous practices to, you know, create a product like honey or teas or, you know, working in regenerative poultry, I think there's a lot of room for a really cool exchange between, you know, this indigenous knowledge that the community has and, and healthy, like successful products that we could, we could market and sell. All while preserving your culture and heritage, like together. Mm -hmm. So how do we help you? What are your needs? Where can we donate? <laughs> <laughs> Great question. <laughs> I mean, since, uh, since you asked, <laughs> no, I think there's like a lot of ways. Uh, Leah, please help me out. But, you know, a lot of the website there, uh, 
pishanishim.org. It's one, uh, but there's also other ways, just reach out to us, other ways to contribute to like volunteering and, uh, you know, things like that, especially for those that, you know, uh, understand agriculture, uh, you know, trainings and things like that. But I think also I will just say it out there to the universe and say that if it's a family that wants to, you know, give land to a community that we are set up to, to accept, uh, you know, also, also that, you know, land. And so Leah, can you help me there more? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that we've had like a really incredible year of growth going back to that sacred reciprocity, like Luis and the community have just built so many relationships. And so we are seeing some, um, you know, some of that come to fruition in terms of receiving financial support, but we, you know, are still very much raising funds um, to be able to purchase um, our own farm here in Nebraska. So definitely visit our website. Um, it's like Louis said, Pishani Shim. So it's P I X A N I X I M dot org. And I mean, I don't know if we can put our email address up, but we yeah, <laughs> we're yeah. very open to having folks reach out and even just to like talk or brainstorm or collaborate or join us at the Indigenous People Summit next August 9th, 2023. Um, you know, we love adding people to our, our community and it's a big family of people, you know, all races, ethnicities and backgrounds that are, are working on this with us. So we'd love for folks to join us. That's great. Yeah. And I wanted to add that on your YouTube channel, I loved all of the videos of your 2022 Indigenous People Summit. And so if people are interested you know, there's a, there's some videos on YouTube. There's a lot of great information on, on your website, which I will put the link in our show notes and I could possibly put a contact info or something if, if you guys want to share one and yeah, land donations, financial donations. If anyone feels uh, compelled, there's a donate button on the website. Be an ambassador, be, you know, talk to friends out there about what we're attempting to do here. I mean, those are the best. We we were on a phone call this morning with someone very powerful and in philanthropy. And we said that, you know, the, you know, we said we all agree that it's not all about money. It's the relationships, um, you know, that, you know, produces the changes that. So, yeah, just uh, no, no, no. Uh, everyone can contribute, you know, in, in one way or, or another, just being out there, being a person that can, you know, speak for or, or, or you know, just carry the message on. Thank you. Well, I'm so honored that I got to speak with you both. And I feel like I'm really going to carry this concept of sacred reciprocity forward. That was just beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your time. Yeah. Thank you. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Calliopeia Foundation, supporting organizations and initiatives that reconnect ecology, culture, and spirituality. Learn more about our work at agrariantrust.org.